Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Raw Knuckles Podcast. Please like, follow, and subscribe. I, I think the, the, the biggest change, and, and you see it personified in the Macaws and the Hughes, is the defenseman becoming forwards. Now, the yeah. NHL designed it that way? No. I think teams teams have have got on that, used that as a weapon since Carlson was doing it in Ottawa, right? There's, I'm going to miss yeah. a bunch of guys, but... You know, the Bobby Yuas days, I didn't realize Bobby Yuas had 100-plus points. Like, I yeah, saw yeah, something, right? something that was crazy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Crazy. And um, Carlson's the first guy to get over 100 in a while, right? So, and, you know, I think that the the, the NHL is going to pro- continue to promote offense, and it's going to come from the back end. That's yeah. probably the most popular way to describe what's going on. When I stepped on the ice, I never backed down, and I never stayed down. And I was vicious, and I was malicious, and I don't care. I'm alive. He's a freaking madman. Look at him going to town. All right, Greg, um, thanks for joining Raw Knuckles podcast today. My boy Tim is out of town, so it's just me and you, uh, which is fine with me. Um, although we missed the little bugger's humor, to be honest with you. Um it, you um you've been coaching for a while now and um just getting the job uh with the Anaheim Mighty Ducks head coaching job just just an honor for you I know that um what's going on this summer here F- four years in Colorado um uh, with the Eagles uh successful and then all of a sudden jobs come up you go and you go through the process you end up getting this new job, which I know you're excited for. What happens with you after, after you get that job, you know, you're in Colorado, you got to move back East, then you got to get to Anaheim. What, like people don't realize the coaching life is a lonely, can be a lonely life. What was that process like for you? Well, it was, as you know, it's kind of tragic because my sister had died on uh, June 19th. I was, you know, we were actually in the playoffs, um, I believe it was towards the end of April. We were playing Coachella Valley, who's Seattle's farm team. They went to the finals and lost in overtime in game seven, but we had them right by the throat in a best of five. We're up two games to one in Coachella. The next day, uh, Pat had asked to sit down and meet with me, Pat Verbeek, about the opportunity in Anaheim. Kind of didn't see it coming. You know, I, I have some mutual friends. You, you remember Craig Billington, the goaltender that yep. played for the Bruins in Jersey and Ottawa, blah, blah, blah. And Craig had had resigned last summer at this time to spend time with his family. And he had been in that crew with Chris McFarland and Joe Sackett to hire me. It was actually five years ago at this time. And I, I should make a note of that and come back to that in a minute. But... So I got, anyways, I met with Pat, things went well, you know, we ended up losing game four and five, lose the series. And then, you know, for the listeners, like you want to talk about anxiety when you've got, you know, all these years trying to get a job in the NHL. And then you meet with a guy uh, who's to me looked like he was doing a rebuild that was really well f- suited for me as a coach. Cause I've been through multiple rebuilds, college, um, U S national program, AHL levels, 
and then and then like I was joking around like you know it's a, this is a joke but you know you you rob a bank with Pat Verbeek because he doesn't tell you anything right his cards are close <laughs> yeah. to his chest he's real poker face guy <laughs> so anyways I waited you know and I'm like okay I I I, I think I did a good job on the interview. It went five hours, but I don't, and he shared that with me in a very, you know, business-like response. But I wait, I think it was like three weeks. I get a call back and you come out and meet with me again in Anaheim, which I did. That goes, and that, again, interesting window into the interviews because I, I went through the Bruins interview last year and it was, you know, Don Sweeney, Cam Maley and Jangy Langenbrunner. And it was a, kind of a different interview because they have a older team. They're just trying to get to the finish line, which is the Stanley cup where the ducks are a long way from the finish line. So Pat's interview was very different. And a lot of guys, when they interview, I can't speak to everybody else, but the, I should say the people that are interviewing, they're looking at you through a different lens than your lens looking at them. Right. Yeah. So it's hard to try and create a narrative that's going to fit what they want because you really don't know, right? They can give you some questions, but they're broad questions. Yeah. And um, Pat did something very unique. He said, okay, if your strength is player development and, and rebuilding, you know, I want to know what your targets are. Like what are the areas that you're focusing on that are going to be the anchors behind the rebuild, which was really interesting. And he wouldn't tell me, he didn't write it down. He told me over the phone. So I didn't have like, I wasn't prepared unless I wrote notes talking to him on the phone. So without taking up too much time. So that was that first time you spoke with him uh, same like thing. during the playoffs and it was on yeah. the phone. It was on no, it was on face to face. Face so we Okay. He drove from Anaheim to, to Palm Desert, which is only an hour. Okay. And we met at a hotel for five hours. Wow. Just yeah. And <laughs> and it was supposed to be like two. And I at that point he had given me like what's your coaching philosophy? Um, that was one of the questions. The other one was, um, oh, um, you know, give me your, give me your identity as a coach. Like what, what is it about you that actually is integrated into your coaching style, which is an interesting question. Uh, what's your definition of success? So that's a very broad one yeah. that, that those three, we never opened up our notebooks. We just talked that led into a real fluid conversation and then it went five hours. And then the next one was he got into the mechanics of it. Okay, so you went through all these things. He didn't really take notes. We were just talking. They said, okay, tell me how you actually execute this. How are you going to do this? Yes, which is really cool. And then, so then he says, then show me the video. So then I have all this video that I prepared because I waited for like two weeks, two and a half weeks for the second interview. From your time with the Eagles. Yes. The video. So you took things that you applied in Colorado with yeah. your team there. Yeah. And you showed him what, like PK, uh, power play, your, your so system five teams. on five? No? Yeah, okay. just five on five. And then he told me to watch four <laughs> Ducks games, you know, and then tell me what I thought about his team individually and how they played. So I want to be sensitive to Dallas and his his staff right yeah and and you know dallas had been there for a while and i i really like him he's a good guy i coached him in new york in the 1990s and i coached with him in toronto he was the mollies i was the maple leafs so i wanted to be respectful to him and and so i basically watched the video through my eyes like this is how i watch your team play 
I took the same kind of copious notes I take when I watched the Eagles play and I did it into scoring chances and I did it into like individual edits. So I created a database, not knowing what he was going to look for. So it's almost like going in an interview with this, this, this sea of information and not knowing what he wants to pull out of it. Right. So um, we went through some mechanics that were married to the analytics, which is a big thing now. Some yeah. owners are really big on it because for them it's numbers and they can look at things optically and say, why are we so bad here? Why are we so bad here? Why are we paying this guy this much? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So I wanted to be proactive with that because Chris McFarland's a big analytics guy and he, he drove that with the avalanche. And so I had some information that I thought was uh, applicable to the Ducks. Some of it's that sport logic that you might have heard about, Chris, that, that yeah. anybody in the NHL can plug into it. And it's, it's a database that's very accurate because it compares everybody under the same categories, right? The same criteria. Yeah. And now analytics has morphed into, they call it home-baked analytics, where the avalanche might have their own criteria that makes them unique from, say, the Canadians or the Maple Leafs, right? Yeah. So I had all this stuff, and I did it in a way that I felt I could distribute it really quickly if he wanted something. So we sat down at seven hours about three hours, four hours into it, he said, okay, show me. And um, I showed him right down to player development practices. We videotape our practices in Colorado. Uh, I think it's really important. And, and you, you know, you're probably a Patriots fan. And Bill yeah. Belichick's big quote is, practice execution equals game reality. So if you don't yeah. practice the right way, you're probably going to have those habits follow you right into the game. I believe that. You know, we'll get into that later about habits, you know, addiction, all these things come together. Let me interject there quick, because I just want to tell you that quote. And, and again, I go back to when I played Doug Risebrow. All right. Been there for a couple of cups. I come in and I remember one practice. He grabbed me. He said, hey, you got to pick it up here in practice. He said, you got to simulate the game in practice. He was all over me. I'm a young kid, right? And it, it, for me, I was like, okay. And I listened, and I got what he's getting at. And here we are, you know, how many years later, 40 yeah. years later, and we're talking about Belichick practice, execution, game reality. That's it. Yeah. But it's so true, right? So go ahead. Yeah. Sorry to. Yeah. So I picked that off of that ESP, ESPN Plus series with Tom Brady. I listen yeah. to him and I kind of record him on my phone when I see something I like. And then he follows that up with, which I think is critical to, to players getting better. He says, you can't coach what you don't know, right? So then, hey, we're all we're all learning from other people. Like Doug, Doug Riseborough told you something that's stuck in your head, right? There's no like real empirical knowledge that comes into your head. I mean, it does happen and you watch things and you can you can turn them and twist them into a better version of a drill or a better conversation with a player where you hear somebody else have a conversation and say, maybe I should have done it that way. So my thing is with Belichick saying that, well, that that's a two-sided coin, right? So flip it over. That means a player can't do what he doesn't know, right? So we're responsible for telling him things that's going to stimulate his growth, right? Doug Reisbile said something to you 40 years ago, and you're like, crap, I better get on this quick. I better stop practicing harder because that's going to turn into, that's going to convert and transfer into a game. So all these things have kind of collaborated in my career 
just out of curiosity, because I didn't play in the NHL, right? I, I do feel at my core is I'm genuine. I'm authentic. I'm not a BS guy. I'm not a marketing brander no. guy. So I try to do things that I think I'm real comfortable sharing. And I shared those with Pat. And they were actually manifested in those video clips I showed him. And I know when he was watching, he was I could see his body language. He's like, wow. Like, he said the same thing that you said about Riseboro with another coach that he worked with about scoring goals just from watching the video. And he goes, I didn't realize the roots, the genesis behind that came from that practice I had in New Jersey 36 yeah. years ago, whatever it was. So I was really, when I knew, when, when, he, when he, when the light bulb went on in his head or turned back on in his head when I was going through this, I realized that he was, he was eating what I was putting out in the food table in terms of video and information, in terms of the mechanics of how I could make his organization create a culture that's, that's tangible, that's predictable, that's transparent. And I, it just worked out really well. So that interview, uh, certainly you get that second interview with him. Um, now with Boston, you get the one interview last year. Was that it? Yeah. Yep. So when you got that second call, you're like, you must have been feeling pretty good when you got the second call. I was, but then he told me at the end of that one, he had a couple more to do. And I think it was pretty well written in the media that, you know, Pat had interviewed a lot of people and it's smart, right? He wants to get ideas. He wants to find how, you know, different people did it. Um, you can overload yourself, but I think he hit a balance where he had like 10 guys he, he zeroed in on. And then um, there was like three guys left. And then I was one of the three. So I, I, I was joking around with, um, uh, Kevin DuPont, who you know from the Globe, yeah. and you know, I was like, you talk about anxiety, so you think you're mm -hmm. you're going to get it, but then you keep waiting. So he actually, uh, I flew back out, I flew back, I flew back out on on June 1st, I met with the owners, and that went well, and then um, and then he he told me that, hey, you know, we're going to work through a contract and, and put a job together for you. I think the press conference was like on June 5th. So going back to your question, I that was kind of the calendar date of when it all went down. I think I met him in Anaheim on like the 24th of May, went back out a week later, got the job, and then I, I flew back to Colorado, packed my stuff up, put it in my SUV, and drove back to Boston. So you're back uh, east now, in, relaxing during the summer. And I say coaching is a lonely job, and it can be uh, for sure, but – you played Colby College, uh, played college hockey there from 82 to 86. Um, why, did you go any further or did you have any aspirations of going on as a player uh, when you were in college? No, it's interesting. I, I, you know, back then, Chris, they didn't have Hockey East when I went to Colby, right? I played... Yeah. I went to three high schools. I went to Arlington High. I don't know if I ever told you this, but, you know, like my family goes way back to South Boston, like hundreds of years ago, right? So yeah. my father had four brothers. They moved when they were kids out to Arlington. We still have relatives there. And we joke around. You can take the people out of Southie, but you can't take the Southie out of the people, right? So yeah. we were in that mix, very tribal neighborhood. My brother's, my father's brothers moved to Arlington. Some went down to Quincy. And that was kind of the migration back then, right? And and we went, you know, we, so we got a nicer house and more grass in our yard. And 
but the problem was we were going to school with the similar kids from Charlestown and, and Somerville and, and Southie that did the same thing, right? So my brother gets stabbed in high school in 1977, okay? He had a fight in a hallway and it spilled into the stairwell. Arlington High? Yes, Arlington, yeah. yeah. And um, Arlington High was big back then. You probably remember when you were in high school how yeah. good they were in hockey, right? They were great in hockey. Yeah, big Irish Catholic neighborhood and, and uh, you know, tough, good football team, just tough Irish kids. And um, he had the suburban lifestyle with kind of the city mentality. And then my brother gets stabbed and my parents are like, hey, we're not, we, we're not, we're not going through this, right? So we went, we were fortunate. We went to Buckingham, Brown and Nichols. I don't know if you remember, it was yeah. old Brown and Nichols probably yeah. when you were at CM and then, and then um, we, we went there, it was between Belmont Hill and Brown Nichols. So we went to Brown and Nichols and uh, we spent three years there. We played football, hockey, and baseball. And um, I wasn't that, I wasn't great in any sport. I was good in hockey. I liked hockey. I liked football more, but I, when as a kid, I was small. I was only like 155 pounds in high school. My brother was one of those guys, when you walk to school, he'd keep looking, he'd get older every day, right? He was a big, thick kid and he was a fighter and all that stuff. And I had my... My cousins were all boxes, and so they were all YMCA boxes. And so we would, you know, we, we'd get out of that kind of, that herd of their crowd of people, went to Brown Nichols and got exposed to a totally different group, people that were actually driven to be good students, right? Yeah. And uh, But we played our sports. And my last year, I went to Arlington Catholic, and then I went uh, I went from there to Colby, okay? So long story short, ECAC Division One, Two, II, and Three. And I think you know my father went to Northeastern and played was a captain yeah. there in '59. And your my uncle, uncle a, yeah. yeah, and my uncle in '61. So I wasn't good enough to get recruited by Fernie. Okay, yeah. So I I went to uh, Colby. I played uh, hockey there, and then I got out of school, and I'm like, oh damn, what am I gonna do? So when I got out of school, I didn't have like any role models in my neighborhood that I could kind of follow their path. I was like back doing the same thing I did. Before school, I was paying because every summer we worked. Nobody in my family was hanging out at a golf course playing golf. We were all working, but I was painting houses, caddying, doing stuff like that. So, but when I got out of college, I had a nice degree, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So then I was hanging out with the same guys that were drinking and doing their thing, and I was doing it with them. And I'm like, I can't keep doing this. I, I had this crazy thought about this ain't gonna work for me. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. I went around the, I went to New Zealand by myself when I was 22, maybe. Remember the head of the Charles Regatta? Do you remember that yeah, boat yeah, race? Yeah. So I was at that boat race in <laughs> 1986 and we were drinking, acting like idiots. And there was one guy there who was like, he was from Marblehead, you know? So he had his yeah. little boat shoes on. And his, yeah, Marblehead. <laughs> and his eyes on shirt. And he was a Colby grad and he had, you know, he was whatever. I don't want to stereotype the kid, but he said something about New Zealand. And I'm like, New Zealand, like, what the hell is that? So and you just went, decide to go. Yeah. So I got, <laughs> I went to the bookstore in Cambridge and I got the, remember those from his bookstore book, book yeah. you could buy. Yeah. So I bought one and I looked at New Zealand. And I said, I'm going there. Two weeks later, I was on a plane. I went Boston, LA, LA, Hawaii, Hawaii, Tahiti, Tahiti, New Zealand, New Zealand, Sydney. I was gone for eight months. When I had, so, I had, so did you find yourself in those eight yeah, months? I found a lot of sheep. I worked in a sheep farm for two weeks, two months, <laughs> saved money, and I almost got killed a number of times, right? Hiking and stuff, like literally. I worked in a construction site in Sydney building sandstone retaining walls. 
with a local Maori population from New Zealand who flew over there. It's crazy stories, but I went back and I'm like, nothing changed. I went on this experience. So I went up and I coached at Colby for a year just to kind of, I thought I might want to coach. And then I went from there to, to UMaine and yeah. UMaine's kind of where my coaching career took off. With Sean Walsh. And then uh, you went to Colorado College, uh, right? Maine. Yep. Yeah. Uh, then the U.S. development team under 18. Now, were you one of the guys who started that program? Uh, me, Bob, Bob Mancini, and Jeff Jackson were the three guys who started it. So you started it. And, I mean, that's a hell of a, um, uh, a program, uh, what it's turned into when you think. Like, yeah. how, how proud are you looking back at starting that program and you look at it today? I mean, Christ. It's yeah, well, incredible. Yeah. They, they, I don't think people in USA hockey will, they're not there anymore. David Ogren's not there. He was the yeah. leader then. I Brian Petrick was, Brian Petrick was a, he's a former goalie at Harvard and he was involved yeah. in it as well. And they were very supportive, but USA hockey, as you know, as you, I don't know if you know this. Politics but, at all? Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the grassroots people, they didn't like it because it was a radical shift from investing in a marquee program, which was going to represent the country at age 16 and 17 to the grassroots stuff. Right. So yeah. it was totally radical. There was a lot of, there was a lot of infighting going on, which was a little bit awkward. And Jeff Jackson had to deal with it, but we had a vision and um, we executed the vision. As you know, I mean, think about it, 1996, Nobody even thought this would happen. And we actually, one footnote to the program that's been lost in history is that I had the older group. They were all 1980 birth dates. We played in the OHL. So that was the uh, Adam Hall, Joey Goodenow, Dougie Janik, Jordan Leopold, David Tanabe. Yeah. That group, uh, Ron Hainsey was the last of the yeah. Mohicans. I think he was the last one in that initial group that was playing. We played in the OHL because we were trying to be college hockey friendly, right? We had to think about all these strategies to have people support us, right? So the NCAA gave us uh, the ability to play in the OHL and not lose professionals or retain amateur status. So we had a, a, a whatever you want to call it, a full schedule, but it didn't count on their schedule. So our guys got a taste of the OHL without losing eligibility, the OHL figured out what was going on and they squashed it after the first year. Yeah. 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 So that, that program is what it is today. And that's awesome. Um, start somewhere. You go from there to the Islanders, you were with the Bridgeport sound tigers as a head coach, and then you leave pro hockey, uh, and go to Northeastern. You spend, uh, a few years at Northeastern end up, um, leaving, a very good situation. Not many guys do what you did. You're mm -hmm. at Northeastern. Guys having them college coaching jobs, they just, they're there for life. You end up leaving to take an assistant job in Toronto. How big a, like, when you look back at that move, do you say, listen, I know hindsight's 2020, but at the time, making that move, that's a big move. What mm -hmm. did you have your sights on? Like, I want to coach in the NHL. I don't want to do the college stuff anymore. Yeah. So what happened was, I don't know if you remember Chris, but Mike Milbury went from where he was with Bruins, maybe to coach BC. BC. 
And then he left. He, yeah. yeah, he was there. He was there for like two months. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> you spent, I, I went. You spent a longer time than that at yeah. Northeast. But I was six, there, but I'll tell you a funny seven story. Seven years. So, yeah, six years there. Six years. So, so I had left college hockey in '96, I believe, and I came back in '05. In that nine-year period, college hockey went from hockey night in Boston summer tournaments. Right. No, no Internet. Right. No, nobody's texting. No, no agents sponsoring these kids. OK, the USHL hadn't exploded like a hint to these summer tournaments. I was married and I was trying to get my wife and, and I were in New York together with the Islanders. And then she went back to Maine. She she's from northern Maine. She's actually a French girl from from Van Buren, right across the border from Edmonton, New Brunswick. Yeah, and she she wanted to get back. I wanted to keep the marriage alive, so I I went from Bridgeport to Northeastern based upon the history there. I'm from Boston. Go back. You played there. You know this, the area, the neighborhood. My, there's a lot of nostalgia there, so it made sense to me to go back and then try and keep my marriage alive. And you know, obviously, Boston's closer to Scarborough, Maine, than than New York City and Bridgeport. Are. So I go back there. I'm not kidding you. Two weeks back into that job. I'm like, oh, crap, what did I do? I could not believe how much college hockey had changed in the nine years I left Maine with the agents, the summer tournaments, the recruiting, the 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 compliance wasn't there. There was no compliance. There was no NCAA yeah. compliance. So I, I couldn't get out of the office. I'd yeah. go in there in the morning and I, I just like, you know, you do your list of things to do and you might have 15 before you yeah. go to bed. Before nine o'clock in the morning, there was 25. Yeah. I just, I felt like I was drowning in work. Yeah. And then I can't, I'm so determined. I'm like, I'm, I, you know, Jimmy Madigan, who's now the athletic director there, yeah. he actually was going to take the job and he pulled back because his kids were going through that age where they're going to go into college. And he was nervous about the job. Cause if you look at Northeastern, they hadn't won anything, you know, outside the bean pot back in 88. And they made a tournament 20 years before that 25. I don't even know what it was, but it was a bankrupt school. And the AD there was Dave O'Brien, who was a great guy, but he, you know, he couldn't promise me what he didn't have. So I get there and I'm like, oh my God, we have a worse budget than Merrimack, who had yeah. just, you know, was a division two school. And, uh, and you know what happened? So make a cliff notes. We finally win, have a great year. We just miss a few beats. Turn the program around there. Yeah. yeah I Get the infrastructure that you need to keep winning, which was the, the building got renovated. President Arun, I think, still there, made the financial commitment. So then I we get to a point where we got 25 wins. And as another footnote, here's who we have coming the year before I leave. Johnny Goudreau, Ryan Johansson, Skizens, Benning's in the NHL, Manson's in the NHL, Alexiak's in the NHL. We have all these guys coming, which to me is a reflection of the recruitment that Albie O'Connell did and Sebastian LaPlante, but the identity and the culture recreated. But I start thinking, oh, my God, now I'm going to recruit against North Dakota, Michigan, BC, BU, not UMass Amherst, yeah. not Providence, not trying to find these diamonds in the rough. And I'm like, I had enough. And, my, and I said, told my ex-wife, I said, I got to go. And, and ironically, I was so busy at Northeastern working, my marriage fell apart. I couldn't even get to Maine. And you thought it was going to be uh, yeah. something that would save your marriage or keep right. your marriage going. That's And that's why I say that coaching can be such a lonely life, you know, and, and there's so much involved, especially at Northeastern at the time now. You know, 
here you are today, and we, you know, practice execution, game reality. I know uh, you also, I and I listen to some of your interviews, and you say you coach the person first and not the player. How critical that is. How long did that take you to grasp that? Because you sure as hell didn't do it your first year at Colby as an assistant. You must no. have had to over years of of you know, making mistakes, maybe doing the wrong thing or finding things that work. How did, when did that come about in your coaching career? Well, first of all, Sean Walsh and was a brilliant guy. I mean, he passed away at 43 years old. He would have shattered all the records. I think he would have passed Jerry York if he stayed in college. I don't think he would have, but yeah. he didn't quite use that terminology because he was not, Early in his career, he was coaching the player first. Like, he was so – you talk to Jimmy Montgomery, you talk to Paul Cree, or any of those guys that went through there. Yeah. Like, he was a, he was a cutthroat guy. He was a blast of honesty. And he didn't care who you were, the Zamboni driver or, the, or, or Montgomery, right? He was going to give it to you if you didn't meet his standard. Yeah. Uh, but Grant Stanbrook was his sidekick. And I don't That's know. That's a little easy to do at the college level, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Especially when the young kids. But Grant Stanbrook was his sidekick. And Grant's the guy. He was at Wisconsin with Bob Johnson. He coached Chelios and Suter yeah. and Richter and all those guys. He's won six championships in hockey. Grant's an unbelievable human being. He's 88 years old. Um, Grant's the guy that, for me, probably had the biggest impact on how to deal with people. And then later on in life. So, so Grant, it's an interesting strategy. Like Grant would ask the player what he thought. And I don't know if you've had coaches that, cause you know, when you played, you know, when the game was tough and there was a lot, it was a black and white world and you did yeah. what the coach said. Yeah. And there was no, there was no questioning behind the coach's message. Right. No. And um, I kind of caught the tail end of that with Mike Milbury and, and Butch Goring in New York. But, um, but, um, so Grant would ask the player, what do you think in there? It's interesting. I used to watch him do it. I'm like, you know, cause I, you know, God bless my parents, but when, you know, you probably had the same thing growing yeah, up. Old in school. Yeah. You, you didn't do it. You were getting yeah, that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bet your ass. So you didn't get the question out of your Spare mouth. Spare the rod, spoil the, the child. Right. <laughs> Spare the rod. <laughs> so, but Grant would ask the question, what were you thinking there? And I was like, it's interesting. And he would let the player express what he thought. And I don't know if I internalized that then. It was just kind of an ability to, you know, we always say in a in our world, you pause before you say things, right? So I, I, I thought that was a big part of it. And then, you know, and then as I got, you know, years later in life, when I started the U.S. National Program, I had some things happen to me that made me think about the way humans behave differently. And that's where I really started to think, you need to start thinking about what's going on inside this person before you say something so that you can create a message that that player, that person can understand. This episode's brought to you by BetterHelp. We all know how easy it is to get swept up in the fast pace of life. So much so that we forget about ourselves. It happened to me. And most of you know I battled addiction and have been clean and sober for years. I thought I could confront these issues on my own. I couldn't. I've become a big believer in the positive impact of therapy. It helped me to learn positive coping skills and how to set healthy boundaries. It actually empowered me to be the best version of myself. 
So if you're thinking of starting therapy, I suggest BetterHelp. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible, and you can arrange everything to fit your own schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And quite frankly, I wish BetterHelp was around when I was looking for help. It's so easy and flexible. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rawknuckles today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rawknuckles. Well, you're going embarking on this head coaching job in Anaheim. Got some good young core players. Um, and communicating your vision of what you want. You've done that with Pat Verbeek. Now you've got to apply this at the NHL level. And certainly you're dealing with egos and all different types. Now, to apply your plan, um, certainly you got to get to know the players and all that. But the NHL level, when we think the 82 games a year, the you know, the grind of it, the travel, the everything. You incorporate, um, you know, game tape where, you know, I've heard you say you make it as digestible for the player as you can, which I get. But this new vision, how do you prep these kids for what's coming to them? This new coach, this new vision, and and yeah. How do you make it as smooth as you can make it? Because tape and practice, right? Are you going to tape practice in Anaheim? Yeah. Yeah, like guys are probably saying, what the fuck is this? They're going to tape practice? Are they going to fucking see me over there slacking off? Am I going to get, like, you're probably going to have to deal with some of that. What? Anyway, so so how are you going to approach that with with this group coming from, you know, the Eagles, Colorado Eagles, kids that are hungry, they want to get yeah. to the NHL. And now you're here with kids that, okay, we're here. And now you're going to come in and here you go. How do you get them to digest it and accept it? Yeah. And you got to earn it, obviously, but that's good. It's going to be tough. Yeah, I told That's a great question. And um, I, I actually talked to Pat about it. So what I did, going back to your question 30 minutes ago, when I drove back from, from Denver to Boston, yeah. I met, instead of doing it in three days, it took five days. I met with 10 players on the way back. Wow. Good for so you. So I hit Troy Terry in Denver. Then I got to, um, I had a long stretch to Michigan, Camp Fowler. And I got Max Jones. And then I got into Ontario when I got uh, Brock McGinn. Then I got to Toronto when I got uh, McTavish, Drysdale, Carrick, and Strom. I had Strom in New York like 10 years ago with the Islanders, maybe eight years ago. Then so I, he then knows I get, you. Yeah, then I get down to uh, Zegras in uh, Connecticut, and then I get into Frankie Vitrano in, in Springfield, Mass. And then I have great conversation with Henrique, who was on vacation, who's a veteran. And I have a talk with Gibson, the goalie. So uh, Henrique and Gibson are on the phone, but I the question you asked me, going back to Grant Stanbrook, asking them questions. Hey, I was a assistant coach in the NHL for 12 years, spanning like like three decades, maybe yeah, yeah. three decades, 90s, zeros, 10s. So yeah. I have, it, it, just the optics, I have credibility in terms of being able to manage NHL players. Yeah, And I have somebody like Strom, 
who's watched me work, has a relationship with me. And you know how it is, Chris, right? We used, I used the word tribal before and with the Irish stuff. Yeah. Hockey's very tribal, right? Yeah. So they talk. As soon as I got the job, I guarantee there was text going out to Stromy, <laughs> right? Who is this guy? What's the deal with him? So Stromy told me that. He goes, I've already gotten my phones blown up. These guys are like, what's up with this guy? And so I, I, I said to him, this is how I feel we can make the most progress with this transitional group, given what happened the last five years with no playoffs, given marrying it to Pat's vision. I hit all those topics you mentioned, practice habits. Because if you're going to say practice hab habits of game execution, I'm not going to show video practice video to the players. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. watch. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to watch it. For you. When, I, when a guy says to me, kind of have it as an opportunity to empower people, right? Well, I, I think I'm practicing really hard. Really? Well, I got videotape here that suggests otherwise, right? Yeah. Not trying to get my thumb over the guy and penalize him, but try and stimulate growth from him, right? So, and I have analytics as well that kind of supports it. So, and, and again, I, I'm just shooting from the hip right now. I'm curious myself. I'm curious. Like you, when you asked that question, you asked it, asked it in a very skeptical way, right? Like I don't take it personally. Like yeah, you're I know. saying, yeah, how are you going to do this? I'm, right? th I'm thinking as because I've been a player and coaches right. come in at that right. level and you're right. like, what the fuck are we in? It's a different time. I get it. But right. what's coming? What's right. coming is the player's thought, you know? Right. Is this guy so, going to be a prick? Is he a hot right. ass? Is he blah, blah, blah? So, so here's, here's my I, thing. I'm not skeptical. Yeah. I'm curious yeah. as to how right. you're going to achieve this. Right. So so here's my – and I'm curious how they're going to respond, okay? Yeah. I I am who I am. I'm not going to change who I am, okay? <laughs> I, have, I have some old school in me. But I'm compassionate, going back to what, you know, my my lifestyle. Like, yeah. I'm not a complete cutthroat ogre that's going to go in there. It's my way of the highway. I don't behave that way, okay? It's not who I am as a person today. I know that. So I'm really curious. I'm curious when they get the blunt. I told them all sitting down with them, you guys are all going to rebrand yourselves. You're all going to get a jump start. I've been on coaching stats where the head coach gets fired. The same guy that was a lazy SOB that contributed to the coach getting fired is all brand new player the day after the new coach comes in. That's, I can't stand that. Okay. <laughs> and I've taught, and some of these players I've said to them, so why weren't you doing this when X and X was coaching? Why did you check out? Cause you weren't getting your cookies. So you wanted to be on the sidelines, belly aching, being a sabotager. I asked the guys that and they look at me like I get 10 heads. I go, no, no, no. I saw you do it. So now yeah. you're going to be Mr. Goody Two-Shoes because there's a new guy here because you're going to rebrand yourself and try and get into his good kitchen yeah. and play more. It's bullshit. Yeah. So from the very beginning, I've talked to these kids about being authentic. And when we get, when we start training camp, you're all going to be chummy to me right now. But when I stick my foot in your ass because you're not doing something the way it's supposed to be done, that you said, oh, yeah, yeah, I want that today when we're sitting down at a diner in Toronto – and then you're not doing it in, in Anaheim and you get, you know, a swift kick in the rear end verbally, right? Then so so you, you're telling me you want those things. I'm really curious what happens. Because and what I've done, Chris, and there's a great expression I've learned, and it's really critical in these rebuilds, it takes a village to raise a child, right? Yeah. And you know when you, you need less of a coach 
when the lead is in the room of representing the village, right? Yeah. So when we go through the, when we go down the list and we've got Strom and Silverberg and Henrique and Fowler and Vetrano and Gibson, and they're, they're there and they all want to be agents of change and I'm giving them the standards, then it's going to be interesting if we can get everybody on board because let's be honest, like the people that really know the NHL, we're not going to be the most talented team every night on the ice. We finished 32nd. So what do we have to do to make up for that lack of, of natural talent? We better work and we can all work. So I'm curious psychologically if guys can get themselves to work at the highest possible level. Wow. It, uh, again, it's, it's a big chore. Now, that, what, do you have any trepidation going into that, you know, situation? I know no. you've prepared for this. You've, um, what do you think will be your, your, your biggest challenge with that new group? It's going to be to get them. Cause I did, I, and again, not, I don't want to speak to what happened with the other staff. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. But, but I, I, I know I'm focusing in on, I'm serious, Chris. I'm really curious because you and I are in a different crew in terms of lifestyle and stuff. Yeah. And when somebody told me something 27 years ago, I'm like, there's no way I can get sober. There's no way. Like, I'm like, there's, there's yeah. no way. I, but, but I did. And I know, so like, so, you know, I'm probably beating you to the question. I'm weaving it in here. But so I'm, I'm a sober person. I've been sober for 27 years. I, I, I was in a crowd of people that still drinking. Tragically, I lost my sister to alcohol, right. you know, three weeks ago. And, and she couldn't stay sober. She couldn't get sober. Despite the 12 step sponsorship, the big book, the literature, the meetings, everything. She couldn't stay. She couldn't stay in the rails and get sober. I was fortunate. I did. I'm competitive, whether it was a spiritual awakening or a spiritual shift or the right sponsor, I did the work to get sober. Okay. So I mean, and again, not bragging, and you're in the same crew I'm with, yeah. like one out of 10 people that's, that's drunk and using gets sober. That's crazy. One out of 10. Yeah. I went to rehab with 25 people, like three people are sober out of that. And yeah. they got the best resources. So I, again, so strip the, the, the rehab out of it, just like go to the core part of being sober, like just getting the, getting a sponsor, doing the 12 steps, reading the literature, sponsoring people when you get through the 12 steps to me getting better as a hockey player is a lot easier if those let's just say the 12 steps are just developmental tools let's just say the sponsorship is the leadership in the room and the coaching let's just say the literature the big book and any sponsored literature is the video like this may sound crazy to people listening that aren't familiar with sobriety but and I'm not a, I'm not I'm not kind of like promoting this. No, I'm just saying it, yeah. this is this is who I am. So yeah. I know that if if guys follow those things and I can support them in a really positive way, right? That and and I'm I, I say it, I'm in this with them the same way I'm in it with my sponsee. Like I'm in this with you. Your failure yeah. is my failure. And yeah. I think there's a uniqueness to the way that I coach, I'm not saying it's better, I'm saying it's unique. I'm not judging anybody else. There's a uniqueness to the way I coach that I can, I can, I feel confident that I can inspire change in, in, a, in a person. Well, listen, I get that being in the sober community and certainly understanding what it takes to get 
so but a lot of people don't don't understand sobriety. They think it's all oh, you just stop drinking or you just stop doing drugs. It's more than that. You got it, it has to be change from within and healthy change from within. And certainly I can see how especially when you talk about coaching the person before the player that that's such a you know uh tool to have in your your briefcase to be able to apply to players and not about not about not drinking it's about here's how I can have this relationship and communicate with you one on one you're a much better communicator today based on Yes, your sobriety. And yeah, your experience over the last 30, 40 years coaching, whatever it is, 38 years. I mean, it's incredible. Um, but, you know, when you look at today's player compared to back when you started, right, what do you think is the biggest need for these guys today? Some of these players today, what's the biggest need? Like, I look at, how the game has changed so much. Yeah, it's fast. It's not as physical, not as much fighting. Uh, what do players need today to succeed? They seem, My, we always hear that, that, you know, it seems like today they, you know, they, they need their little iPads. You know, I hate the fucking iPad. I take that thing and fucking hung, hum it up in the balcony. I hate it. I, I really, when I look at it, I say, if I was coaching, and I'm not, you know that, but... If I was coaching, I wouldn't allow them on the bench. I would say, listen, if you want to look at something, come in between periods and check it out. I don't want guys fucking on the – I want you ready for your next shift. I want you watching the game. Fuck the iPad. Maybe that's why I'm not coaching and you are, but – Okay, so – Biggest need. Uh, biggest need for players today. Okay, so within a, within the toolbox, your biggest needs, right? Yeah. So biggest one they need, they want to be valued. They want to feel personal value, right? Yeah. So again, that comes through conversation with the player and then lining up what his goals are. What are your goals? So I got to tell you this funny story outside of the iPad, okay? So like, this is something I, I just kind of figured out myself, okay? So, and you play with guys and you probably went through this yourself. Players have an identity of who they think they are in the space between their ears, who they think they are, which is a, which is a reflection of their training habits, their, their playing careers, their parents and their agents telling them what they should be. So they think all that information is right here. Then there's another layer of information, which is on the playing surface. So you, Chris Nyland knew when he went up against Bob Probert on a face-off circle, like, okay, we're going to have a sword fight on the hash marks. I'm not giving in. And Bob Probert knew Nyland's not giving in. So there was an intimacy to your identity that Bob Probert knew and felt, okay? Yeah. Maybe a little different story with shot or, you know, whatever. Bob Gale or whatever. <laughs> right, right. Different, different, different response, right? And then there's that view up above where you're watching games now on the balcony, right? You look down and there's a satellite view. So out of those three images, there's truth to somebody's identity. Agreed? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The guy up above is unemotional. You always watch the guys with the skill. They can skate. They can shoot. You watch the guys that go in and blast the guy in a forecheck. You watch the fighting. Sometimes it's a quiet defenseman that just plays as, as a 5'6'D man. Good first pass. You don't notice him much. That's a good thing, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. You don't you don't want those guys getting involved in the rush, right? You might so guys are going to reveal themselves. So out of those three different images, there's a truth to a player. So I always ask the player, "Who are you? Like, who are you as a player?" Do you know, Chris? You wouldn't believe this, okay? I I talk to each player before the season starts. The number one word that should come out of their mouths when I say what lens are you going to describe yourself through? Give me a word. Okay. You would think, I would think, but I'm 60 years old. They would say, this is going to be an honest lens. They don't, they can't come. The word honesty doesn't come into their mouths first. Well, it, it again, I'll go back to my favorite all-time coach in Jacques Lemaire. And he came to me after one game and he said to me, how do you think you played tonight? I said, not bad. I was pretty good. I've been better, but pretty good. Get honest with yourself. And I'm like, what? What do you mean? Get, get on, get on. You, you were not good. And I was like, fuck, it was killing me because I love this guy. I respect him and he's crushing me right now. And he told me, listen, there's 80 games in the season. You can have one of those every 10 games. Eight games a year, you can have one of those. Don't make it a habit. And I was like, he said, be honest with yourself in the way you play. And I heard that back in the 80s from him. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm hearing it again here. And players don't, you don't want to be honest with yourself. I suck tonight i was just well you won't be too harsh on yourself you know if you had a bad game you say well i was all right you don't say i sucked Not very few players will get that honest with themselves you know well, you know you know what's interesting is when you and give admit them those, to it right so when you give them those images right the, yeah. i see their brains thinking like uh what am i like on the face-off edge am i like soft what is that guy automatically you see their brain spinning and then about what's the guy watching above see, right? So then I say, okay, come back to me tomorrow with an honest view of who you are. Then they'll come back, think about it and write it down. I said, okay, so then what are we gonna do for, what tools you talked about, what, what tools are we gonna, are we gonna use to get you to be that guy that you wanna be? You know, with iPods on the bench, I'm not a big fan of it. The other thing, Chris, that's creeping into the game that's com- was never there when you played, the, these damn things, okay? They sit yeah. down their food. You'll see eight guys sitting at a table and they don't even look at each other. Yeah. They're, they're eating their food and they're like this. So I tell them, get rid of the phones. Get rid of the phones. No phones in the locker room. No phones in the change room. Okay. You get the phone. You get to use the phone when you're outside the facility. You don't have the phones when you're having a team meal. Like, how does that work? Yeah. Like, how does that, how does that create camaraderie and that village, you know, that village identity that you want to create? Yeah. I, yeah. You know, I did. I got to think that you set that rule, but it gives play and it gives players something to fucking pick at. Fuck. We can't even bring our phone in the fucking room. I can hear it now. Like I think back when we played, I remember we're down two games to none in a series. And afterwards we're, we're at a team meal in the hotel and everybody is sitting around there trying to troubleshoot, talking to each other. What are we going to, how are we going to, here's what we got to do. Bob Ganey, you know, listening to guys and, and having those conversations, which is key. And it's, I think that is missing today. 
And and so you're going to do that in Anaheim. I'm not. Yeah, they're not going to have. There's no. I didn't. I don't. I know the Avalanche don't have their cell phones in the yeah. locker room, which is a know? good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and the team meals like, hey, can I can I force them not to use their phones? No, but I'm going to encourage them. Yeah. It's not a punishment. Yeah, it's not. Do you, I mean, let's face it. Do you want to win? If you can tell me, if you just share a story about you know being in a playoff series and talking yeah. about you know finding solutions to winning a game, right? Yeah. If, I, I always ask the players going back to Grand Stanbrook. Guys, do you think it's healthier to sit down and, and talk at a pregame mail, whether it's about the next game or what's going on in your personal life? That doesn't create a better bond than doing this the whole time with your heads down. Not one guy's going to say, oh, it's better to have my head down looking at my phone. So I try and ask them questions to make them take ownership of it, right? And that's what going, you asked the question. I said, anytime you can create an environment where they're taking ownership and you're in that ownership relationship with them, I found I find they're way less resistance. They're way less pushback. I've had guys that push back, ironically, and a week later come back and say, you know what? And I'm not saying this to make myself feel good. But yeah. They'll come back to me and say, you know what, Crow? You're 100% right. I thought about it, and you're 100% right. Yeah, it takes time to get those plays. Because, again, me being a – listen, I'm not the house painter. I was the, digging the holes, right? And, and I get that. And a lot of house painters, you know – they're so good. They're talented. They feel sometimes they don't need certain things that are being done in practice. And I remember you uh, talking about, and, and repetition is the key to retention. I get that. But I remember you telling me once that players in practice can make small incremental changes to their game they apply themselves and if they're taught the proper things how how can you do that like how can you get that point across to players who think they have it all fucking going on well you know those they... those really talented guys who can do all sorts of things with the puck and their goal scorers and playmakers and i got it all but you know what? I, I, have great, I have great experience sharing a story that's going to speak to that. So I'm with the Islanders, and John Tavares is our captain. John Tavares yep. is a quiet guy, okay? Yep. He's not a rah-rah guy. He's a very introverted guy, good human mm -hmm. being, okay? So I'm watching a one-on-one -on -one drill. The forwards are inside the offensive zone at the blue line down. The defensemen are at the far dot, the opposite dot, okay? So the defensemen are going up. They're skating up above the center ice circle, and they're skating back, backwards to defend a one-on-one. The forward, okay, is going to play catch when he gets across the red line, get it back, and then attack the D. So the timing of the drill changes because the D controls when he gives it back to the forward. So the D can give it back early and create a good gap or late and get a, a tough gap, right? So I'm watching Tavares just out of happenstance. And at the time, we had, we had Zidlicki, we had Hamannick, we had... Boychuk, Letty, and Dahan. Okay, Hamnick was the most athletic defender. Okay, so I'm watching the drill, and I keep seeing Tavares move his positioning in the line. Okay, so maybe he was in front of Casey Zekas, yeah. and I see him get behind him, and I see him looking down that end, and then he works behind the next guy, which is say Clutterbeck. What do you think he's doing? He's trying to get the weakest D. 
The hottest D. The hottest D. Okay. All right. The hottest D. He's trying to go right. against Travis Hamannick because he knows Hamannick. If that was me, the- I'd be trying to get the weakest D. <laughs> Sorry. I was thinking of my mindset. <laughs> so, so if there's a player that you spoke about that's got it all figured out with a skill, and I'm watching him married to the same skill that may not be the, the best way to use it in the game, I tell that story. And yeah. I don't tell it to the guy. Yeah. And I see, I'm looking at the guy when I'm telling the story, okay, in the locker room. The funny thing is, though, it creates a pecking order, right? So they're all looking around the locker room when I'm done, and they're trying to figure out, like, in my team, Keaton Middleton, yeah. this big six foot six defenseman, yeah. he's an animal, right? They're like, shit, do I really want to go against him? But then I watch the drill, and they're all in the one on one line trying to figure out who's going next. But that, to me, is a way to you know, take a guy who doesn't want to change because he's got this skill and he's real married to that skill and makes him think. And I'll skate around him in practice and say, are you going to be John Tavares or are you going to be who you are today? And that opens up that door a little bit. If you're like me and you're going to play some golf this summer, you have to check out this hidden gem. Windmill Heights sits atop the beautiful hills in Notre Dame de Il Perot. They have affordable rates and they offer customized membership opportunities for all levels. If you want to book a tee time, call 514-453-7177. Hit them straight. If you love your pet like I love my St. Bernard Adele, you'll want to feed them a balanced, biologically appropriate raw diet. The reason I've chosen Formula Raw is because all blends of their food are locally sourced and they consist of exclusively human-grade meat, in organs as well as fruits and vegetables and all products used are hormone and antibiotic free so like i said if you love your pet like i love adele you choose formula raw make sure you go to formularaw.com and use the promo code rawnux at checkout to receive 10 percent off your first order that's rawnux r-a-w-k-n-u-x Analytics, the NHL certainly resistant to a lot of that at the beginning, right? And now it's ever so much, it's creeped in and become more important uh, around the league. Leagues, the teams have adopted it. Uh, How long did it take you to um, accept that or use it as a tool? And, And is it really helpful in your, I guess, um, determining the the worth of a player somewhat yeah so here's my view on analytics it was started this this um uh frank um dropping his name with the islanders he's the one that was kind of the godfather of it in the nhl back in like 2011 and the hockey guys that are listening here that go to the draft they saw him at the draft table at the islanders when gas snow and charles wong were in charge yeah so frank had more of a satellite view of it and it wasn't really done with surgical precision that it is today. So the beginning data was a little bit, it was, it was a herd data. Okay. Yeah. But it wasn't doing the surgery they can do today. So it's evolved now to a point that you can actually identify where you're really strong in a four check puck recovery, offensive zone, scoring chances, defensing, suppressing shots. So I like to look at it because if it's supporting what I'm trying to create as a team identity, it's just another mechanism to get the players to buy in. When you take the individuals out of it, it's still, to me, now this is what I was looking at the last few years with the Avalanche and with the Eagles. 
the eye test is always going to be better. So when I break a tape down and I do scoring chances and I do hits and sticks and stuff like that, the players trust that data because you have coaches watching it. The analytics a lot of the times won't have the same value to what I get on a scoring chance because they put everybody on the ice gets a mock, a credit for that chance, okay? So I might have a guy say you're on a line with me and 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 Doug Riseborough and I get and I dig a puck out of the corner and I hit Doug Riseborough in the shot in the slot I get for credit. shot. You get credit, but you might have been skating off for a change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the analytics hasn't evolved and it probably will at some point to create more integrity for the individuals, but more I do like it. More, more pinpointed yes. for an individual. Um, yeah. Yeah, geez, that, um, I always wondered about the analytics part of it because, you know, you hear a lot of old-timers talk about this, you can't measure this, yeah. and, you know, yeah. and it's certainly difficult to do. Um, you know, me, I look at what type of teams were standing at the end, usually, in their big teams. Talented teams with talent and depth, but big teams, you got to be a good sized team to be standing at the end of it. It's the toughest trophy to win in sports. I don't care what anybody says. Um, it's a battle night in, night out. Uh, I think Pat Verbeek understands that when I look at, you know, bringing Cologne in, bringing Gudis in, guys that, you know, certainly can, can, you know, withstand the wear and tear of the season and then bring it up a level in the playoffs, which you need. Um, do you believe that too? Yep. And Pat, the core of Pat's rebuild is with that mentality. Yeah. You look at all the D that are coming through junior hockey into the Ducks, it's crazy how big they are and how well they skate. Right. And then you've got this uh, this this Quebec kid, Gauthier, the sentiment that paid, played with uh, played for Patrick Roy. Yeah. Big, big kid. Thick kid, plays with an edge. So, you know, Leo Carlson, big kid. 6'3", yeah. he's going to be 220. They, so Pat is building this team with size and toughness. What, um, now I know it's early, but, and I'm not asking you to um, say who you're going to, who who you would, I, I'm asking you, who would you like? What personality would you like to see as a captain? What What are the qualities that you look for when you look at that whole whole group of guys? Uh, what do you look for in a captain? First of all, a guy that's very honest. He's honest with himself. He has experience and credibility. And in this generation where the players really don't like confronting one another, yeah. Somebody that's comfortable. And everybody, when you say the word confront, people go, ooh, like they yeah. don't like that word. I mean, come on. It's confronting is not necessarily a blunt force. It can be a it can be a kind conversation. Hey, you aware that your behavior is unacceptable. Maybe when you play, it was like, hey, shithead, wake up. This ain't gonna work here, right? Yeah. Conflict so management. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm gonna use that. So we're gonna have Conf a guy that could could manage conflict. Yeah. So that's that's what I would like to get out of a leadership. And I, I, I've talked to Killorn about it. He's a great guy, great yeah. guy. I mean, here's a guy that could have gone a number of places, including staying in Tampa, 
And he chose to come here because, you know, I think he's got a history with Pat. He trusts Pat and he sees a lot of young kids coming through and he wants to be a part of it. That's that's an awesome commitment. The same with uh, with Gudis. Those are two guys to me that are already leaders. All right. The NHL, when we look at it over the years, certainly the landscape has changed uh, somewhat. Uh, are there any... Uh, what what are some of the biggest changes or trends in the game? Which way is it heading? Or is, I think it, the league, is it kind of where it's going to be? I, I think the league has gone on a mission to celebrate speed and skill, right? That's the new NHL. Yeah. Um, which is actually different from what we just spoke about being heavy and, and, and yeah. big, right? Yeah. And, but so you have to have that, you have to have that on your team. You can't just be big, heavy, hungry guys that pound bodies. You got to mix yeah. in the skill. Yeah. Um, I, I think the, the, the biggest change and, and you see it personified in the Macaws and the Hughes is the defenseman becoming forwards. Now the yeah. NHL design it that way. No, I think teams, teams have, have, get on that, use that as a weapon since Carlson was doing it in Ottawa, right? There's, I'm going to miss yeah. a bunch of guys, but you know, the Bobby Ewers days, I didn't realize Bobby Ewers had a hundred plus points. Like I yeah, saw yeah, something, right? something that was crazy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Crazy. And um, Carlson's the first guy to get over a hundred in a while, right? So, and you know, I think that the, the, the NHL is going to pro- continue to promote offense and it's going to come from the back end. That's yeah. probably the most popular way to, Describe what's going on. Uh, thinking about, um, I guess, your career. Uh, what a, and just taking a look back over the years, what are some of the most uh, memorable moments for you over your career as a coach? You know, it's funny. I, I've had some, I've had some great opportunities and, and been in some championship games, and I haven't won. Like I, I, we, we were in a silver medal game with, with Canada and Mike Babcock back in 97 in the world juniors. Yeah. And, uh, Brian Boucher was our goalie and I forget who theirs was, but we lost that game and, uh, in Switzerland that year. I remember talking to you in the parking lot in New York, uh, before we were playing, we were playing Washington. Do you remember that series? It was a brutally vicious series. Yeah. And uh, we lost Game Seven in that in that first round. The Islanders hadn't made a playoffs in a regular season for a while. And the worst experience for me was coaching the Maple Leafs when we played the Bruins in that Game Seven in oh. Boston. We were up four. I didn't even four. think of that. I wasn't even thinking of that, but I can see how that could be. <laughs> yeah, we were up four to one wow. with ten minutes to go and lost in overtime. You know. It's funny, not funny, but I looked at that recently. It come up somewhere, and I I watched it. I I was amazed <laughs> at the comeback. It, I mean, that was insane. And the catalyst, certainly being the captain, uh, well, he wasn't at the time. Uh, Patrice Ber- was the captain. Yeah, Chow was, but, but Patrice Bergeron, the catalyst yeah. of that whole thing, is incredible. So um, I, I'm gonna. Real quick on that, yeah. the garden was like eight thousand people left. You know, when it was four to one. Yeah, they yeah, won't of course. Say that. Yeah, yeah, of course. And then when they made it four to two, can you I blame them? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, but it's it just that's but that's how that's how empty they looked. I was talking to Cam Neely and Don Sweeney about it in my interview last year, and they felt like this is trouble too. But the goal they scored that changed it was a CNI no look pass from behind the net went through about five sets of skates to Horton. I was yeah. standing on the bench watching, and I'm like, uh oh. Yeah. And he just whacked it in. Reimer was on his post looking, and yeah. it went that way, and he shot it in. And I'm telling you, at 4-2 <laughs> or 10 minutes to go, I was like, rut roll. I could actually feel. And um, it, I never thought we'd lose, but I thought it was going to be a bond burner. Yeah. Uh, so, so what – and I started with the coaching life certainly can be lonely. Um, do, do you have those moments? I know you stay busy, and uh, but I remember when I was coaching the East Coast Hockey League, and I did something that I thought just I lost my team. Have you have you have you done that? I had one moment. Yes, I did, where I thought I lost my team in uh, in Chicago. Here's what I did, and, th- and thank God I had that the the core group of guys that backed me but after a game we were up 5-1 we lost 6-5 we're up 5-1 in the third period lost 6-5 with 10 minutes left they boom one after another and I was so pissed the guys I went in the room they were all taking their stuff off I said put your stuff back on they all got dressed I skated them afterwards and I remember going home that night and I said fuck I lost them I I, I just you know, my anger, I felt like they fucking betrayed me. Yeah. And uh, I would honestly, I said, I think I'm I'm done. I think they're going to. But credit to the group. And, you know, I guess I had stronger relationship with the team than I thought I did. But uh, it, it, you know, it, it ended up being fine. How about you? Uh, at Northeastern, we played in Providence. And uh, we were in Providence. We were up three to one. There was the year that we only had three wins. And there was, uh, and I was just talking to a player about this from Anaheim. I got to the point where I thought they had accepted losing. Like, it's okay to lose. We just yeah. play hard and give them consolation prizes. So we pulled into Matthews Arena at about midnight. And um, the lights weren't on. Just this, you know, the old Matthews Arena there. Yeah, and I told them to bring their gear into the locker room and put it on the wet gear on, and I had them skate. And we only had—I don't know—this is a crazy story. We only had one win up to the bean pot that year, so that skate took place around January, and um, they could have quit on me. You know, I thought about afterwards. This is a little Neanderthal, and that was back in 2006, but um, they didn't. I told that group, like, they only had three wins, probably the worst team in Northeastern's history. And uh, I told them after the season, I brought them back every, not every year, but I brought them back and I thanked them. They could have quit. They could have quit yeah. on me. They could have quit on the school. But um, they didn't. And we actually played pretty good down the end. We ended up going, like, I don't know, two and four in the last seven games, two, four, and two. But uh, in a humble little world like that, I, I thought I might have lost them. Uh, well, you didn't, and that's good. Uh, listen, um, I know uh, you spend your summers up in Maine there, and you, you want to get out in your paddleboard and paddle out in that river. Uh, that's awesome, awesome stuff. Yeah. Um, when So when you head out to Anaheim? The end of August. 
end of August going to uh, head out there and embark on this head coaching job with a good young group of guys and, you know, some, some good vets sprinkled in there. No question about it. Uh, I want to, I just, I want, I'm, I'm not going to be a Ducks fan, but I'm going to be watching the Ducks this year for sure. Okay, and I, I just want to wish you certainly nothing but success out there. And I just hope things go your way. You're a good man. I've always um, certainly admired you. And uh, I, I, when you speak and when we get together in our little meetings, I, um, I hang on every word. There's no question about it. So it couldn't have happened to a nice guy getting that job. I really mean that. And I, and, and, and a damn good coach. And I just hope you and wish for success for you out there in Anaheim. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, too. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Raw Knuckles podcast. Don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe.